Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Man, I was I was hoping that I could start this off with like a like a Thanksgiving song or some noises or like jingle bells or something, you know. But there's really yeah. nothing Thanksgiving for me to do here. You know, there's uh there's the Adam Sandler Thanksgiving song. You know oh that yeah, one? <laughs> yeah. Turkey for me, turkey uh-huh. for you. It's a, it's a good song actually. I might need yeah. to play that when we're off of this. <laughs> I think it might uh, have a little no, bit well, of uh, might have some PG thirteen language in it. Or mm, just just yeah. just heads up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it is it is. I guess you could call this our Thanksgiving episode um, because it is coming out right before Thanksgiving and Black Friday and all that fun yeah. stuff. But yeah, uh, I would say so. Yeah, but it's gonna be a good. One. We got another interview. Yep, um, and one that's related to our Black Friday thing, right? That's right. Yeah, we. Uh, I guess we can just talk about that real quick. Um, sure. We we are sure we're we're interviewing um, the founder of Food for Life, which is a international nonprofit. His name is Paul Rodney Turner, and he is uh, a a fourteen year monk um, and been vegan for I don't know since nineteen ninety eight uh, and vegetarian long before that. But what is cool is Food for Life is is this international nonprofit that. Um, their mission is to serve plant-based meals to people who need it. So kids, mostly kids, but also, and I see they're working in Ukraine right now, and they, all of their meals, all of their food that they're donating or that they're providing for people is is vegan, and that's part of their their mission is to serve people these kind of nutritious, sustainable meals. And they have mm-hmm. served 8 billion, with a B, mil, meals. Billion. Uh, uh-huh. billion, which is absolutely, <laughs> I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. That's both as the, many both people fact as... That, that's as many people as, as are on planet Earth. That's on average that's one, right. one meal right. per person on the whole Earth. That's, oh, man, it's an, absolutely incredible. So uh, this year, Compliment and in, Nomad in Athlete are partnering with Food for Life. Uh, we are donating a meal for every product sold. So if you order a couple products, you donate a couple meals. Um, and we have a goal of, of hitting 5,000 meals, which is great. And, of course, uh, along with that, you're also taking advantage of all of the Black Friday sales, 25% off soar-wide, 30% off bundles. It's all wonderful, so go to lovecompliment.com to check that out. But I didn't mean to jump right into an ad here, so um, <laughs> well, how's your Thanksgiving? Your Thanksgiving looks a little different this year. What? Uh, Mine does. I think I mentioned on this podcast that we are traveling, uh, my son and I, to Germany. Actually, tomorrow we leave, uh, and we'll be gone for Thanksgiving and then another week. So uh, it's different. We've done this before, though. We're actually once my son and I went to Spain over Thanksgiving and then into December uh, and so in each of these instances, we've done a Thanksgiving the week ahead, which is when, when we leave, uh, just do like a mini Thanksgiving dinner. And then my daughter and wife still do full Thanksgiving with more extended family uh, later on. So we, uh, you know, we got the, the field roast, roast, I guess it's called, celebration roast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the sage and garlic one, not not the flaked crust one that we've had before with the cranberries in it. Um, but I, I liked that one then, and I... Probably had this one before. If it's not new, I don't know. I've, I've had a handful of these things. We've probably done it for five years now. Uh, and we actually just finished up the Plant-Based Morning Show, which you and I still uh, record every single weekday live, 11 a.m. Eastern, and we put the podcast yep. out. So if you, if you like this podcast, you will like that one almost certainly. Uh, so check out that podcast, The Plant-Based Morning Show. But we just talked. We just did our Thanksgiving episode, and we talked about the roast and uh, and mentioned just this is a good resource if you're interesting or interested in doing this, which you should. I mean, this is a nice way to make a, a Thanksgiving table feel like Thanksgiving and not just a bunch of sides, which is honestly not a bad way to go. But if you want that centerpiece 
uh, instead of turkey. These roasts are good. But thebeat.com has an article uh, that breaks, you know, they like compare them, they compare five of them, these store-bought ones. I think uh, a Gardein, these two field roasts, a Trader Joe's one, and some other one. Uh, they rate them on health and and taste. And this field roast was their number one winner. It seemed like number two was the the next, the other field roast, the one with the flaky crust. Uh, yep. Gardein further down the list. So if you check out the beat, they've got a good uh, a good ranking. And then Veg News has has a list of ten of them plus a bunch of recipes to make your own. So you can always do that. Uh, as we mentioned though, Doug, in that show, once you get, once you incorporate the roast into the Thanksgiving meal, like the, the and they're they're seitan, they're wheat gluten. Uh, it's pretty easy to make the meal start to feel like a big, heavy Thanksgiving meal. Like it's, it's just a little different than when you just have a bunch of sides that is kind of one of those inconveniences of a plant-based diet that turns out to be good. Cause once dinner's over, you're not like uncomfortably full. You just had all these good side dishes, some healthy, some not. Uh, but once that roast is in there, it's easy to eat a whole lot of that <laughs> and just fill up. Yeah. And oh, it is. Feels, I mean, feels it's like the old so days good. of Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, it does. So I don't know. Thankfully, they're small, so if you have a, a bunch of people, you can't eat too much. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, and that's it's what I used to do with the sides. What I used to do on Thanksgiving plate, or Thanksgiving plate, was just have everything like just piled on this massive pile, and it would all kind of bleed into each other. And yeah. you, once you start ch- cutting it, you just get a little bit of everything on every bite. <laughs> and so I try to still do that, but. Uh, you know, have have my roast, and that's there, and then just overwhelm the plate with all the other sides, and then you're getting a little bit of roast here and there, and you're, I don't know, you're just kind of uh, enjoying all the different flavors of Thanksgiving. That's that's my approach. But uh, yeah. I like these roasts. We we get them. Uh, we've got them the last couple of years after being on a stint where we were doing lentil loaves for pretty much every other mm-hmm. holiday, um, and they're just really. I mean, they're incredibly easy and they're good. And you yeah, know, treat yourself. It, it's almost silly to me to talk about health at thanksgiving and mm-hmm. and and talk about even feeling comfortable after the meal as if that's a priority i mean like it i don't know one of the luxuries of eating this way eating a mostly whole food plant-based diet and when it's not that it's still vegan uh i don't know it's it, like you you don't you don't feel terrible after meals a lot of time and then, right, and like right. i used to feel that all the time after a big weekend restaurant meal like you just can't really get that way with most plant-based foods so if one time a year on a feast day uh, we do that. I don't feel like that's the most unnatural thing in the world to do. Just to just to go all out and and who cares? Your health is not going to suffer. Now, I guess if you had a if you were a heart attack risk patient or something, who, you know, one meal who knows, could do it. But uh, if not, then I think it's time to go all out. You don't even think about health. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I think uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's just uh, it's it's an opportunity. Like holidays are just. Uh, you know they're not the time to think about health. Like, yeah, you know. we have a, uh, a relatively speaking classic Norman Athlete Radio episode, Doug. I think it was called "How Not to Be the the oh, yeah. Punchline of the Vegan at the Dinner Party" joke, mm-hmm. and it was about uh, you know I think that joke went how do you how do you know who the vegan is at the dinner party? And the punchline is don't worry they'll let you know, uh, which is still the case for a lot of vegans. People do that, and and maybe more than ever it's not that big a deal because I think I think. Since the time we recorded that episode five six years ago, uh, e- even now it's it's different than it was then to say you're vegan. Like people do understand what it is in a lot of contexts, and they it's just different. Um, but still, Thanksgiving is an opportunity to to spread the message, and it's an opportunity to get in fights and ruin uh, the holiday, and and also kind of make vegans look bad. Uh, 
So I am, I actually, although I said it's an opportunity to spread the message, for me, it really isn't. The message I'm trying to spread is that I can be vegan and you will barely notice. Uh, and, or actually, you won't notice if you don't ask me what I'm doing because I'm not going to bring it up to anybody. Uh, yeah. If, if yeah. it's a Thanksgiving dinner I'm going to, then of course I will tell them that I'm vegan and I'm going to bring a dish. Uh, but like, you wouldn't know if you didn't ask me. I'm, I'm not there to say I'm vegan. Uh, and that's, that is my approach to Thanksgiving. I would rather... Someone find out later, or they ask me a question, and then I tell them I am. Uh, I'd rather them leave with that impression of say, "Hey, that that guy was a vegan who it wasn't in your face about it, and he wasn't trying to get me to eat his way or making mm-hmm. me feel bad about eating this." Uh, I, I would just rather. I think that's a, that's more likely a person who's going to later consider being vegan or vegetarian totally. or just eating less meat yep. than if you than if you just go at him and try to try to convert. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Not my thing. I mean, it really is. Honestly, it's the perfect opportunity to to be a cool vegan. Right, like to yeah. be the guy who isn't talking about it, who is like eating what looks like some really yummy food and enjoying themselves and having a good time and not making a big deal out of it. Like it, it's the perfect time to like normalize veganism. It, it is that because when, along with like I could never give up cheese, number two question you get when you say mm-hmm. you're vegan, they say, well, what do you do for Thanksgiving? Yeah, it's I mean it's it's like it's this one, as if that one day of the year would would affect whether or not you could do this diet and it was crazy that people consider that it is uh but yeah if you can you can be an example of a vegan who does thanksgiving and people don't even notice that you're doing that until you know they later realize it uh i don't know to me that's that's the best we can look now that is a good note to transition (laughs) i think good (laughs) i like it that's some positive thinking there and uh and yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess we will transition to the to the to the interview. First of all, I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving, and yes. um, hope you have a nice, safe travels. Be sure Thank to you. appreciate. We're going to keep the uh, morning show going, so be sure to tune in to that. Oh yeah, and you can um, follow the Plant Based Morning Show uh, Instagram account now, Plant Based Morning Show. So even oh, yeah. if you're not going to come to the live shows or subscribe to the podcast, you can see what we're doing over there. Uh, I'll post some, hopefully, some good Burger King vegan food options, <laughs> uh, choices like it, because those I'm excited about the Burger King. Burger King vegan menu in Germany. Uh, so anyway, just check that out. Awesome. And uh, and then don't forget to go to lovecompliment.com. Take advantage of 25% off all of your all of our vegan multi-nutrients, protein powders, green powders, gut health powders, all the good stuff that uh, you and I both use and every day and um, and swear by. So uh, be sure to check that out, lovecompliment.com, and because Black Friday is live, it will be live through Cyber Monday. All right. That's it. All right. Sounds good. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to No Meat Athlete Radio. Today we have a very special guest, one of a different flavor, but someone who's making a tremendous impact in the world, spreading the the plant-based gospel, if you will, Um, a a self-described food yoga, uh, a former monk, um, someone who's worked in a variety of roles, all the way from the World Bank to being an inventor of a, a billiards training de- device, if I have that correct. Um, we're speaking today with Paul Rodney Turner, um, and I am so excited because uh, for all those reasons, these are so many topics that I, I, I want to open up. But of course, you're the founder and chairman of the Kindly Ecosystem, and one of those organizations is the the world's largest food relief uh you've you've served eight billion plant-based meals it, it's a number so large that it's actually really hard to believe but 
that's your organization called Food for Life Global. Um, and it's got just, well, before we get too deep into it, I'll stop there and say there's so much more to your story, including a, a, a small stint, or I shouldn't say small, I'm not sure, but a stint as a monk. Um, so I'm really excited to dig into all these different things. And again, welcome to the podcast, Paul. I really appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure to have your company and to share some of my story. Well, uh, it's a big story. It's a long story, it appears, or, or maybe it's a short story. And you are just um, truly a prolific uh, person in all its different capacities. So I I'm excited just to start at the beginning. Um, but before I do, I should mention that um, our organization, Nomad Athlete and Compliment, through the holiday season, has a goal of feeding 10,000 children, um, partnering with your organization, Food for Life Global. So we're really, really excited about that. Uh, we'll have to come back onto this podcast after the, in the new year and see where we ended up with that goal. But again, um, you know, thank you for for your support in that endeavor. Thank you for making it possible and for all you do um, to feed a lot of people around the world these plant-based meals. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, I've certainly lived a very eclectic life, um, but the nature of things is that you don't tend to think that your life is so extraordinary. When people look at you from the outside, they think, oh my God, he's done this, he's done that. And for me, it's just the way I live my life. I've always wanted variety in my life. And that led to me even taking the radical decision at the age of 19 to become a monk. <laughs> I was a an amateur astronomer at the age of 15 when I was a regular kid. It wasn't like I was a nerd. I was a regular kid, but I was very interested in intellectual subjects, chess and computers and things like that. And um I got, became fascinated by the night sky. So I would sit up at nighttime with my best friend, Jeff, and we would study the night sky. And we, we got books from the library on astronomy and started to learn the patterns. And we could identify all the stars and, and so on. We, we learned the Greek alphabet because that's used to define the magnitude of the stars. And um, so that sort of plant, that experience at that young age, 15, planted a seed in my heart to, to want to know the big questions, you know, the big answers. Of what's what's the purpose of life? How, why are we so small and the universe is so big? So that planted a seed, which then um, grew at the age of 19 into me deciding to explore those answers by becoming a monk, renouncing everything and becoming a monk and sleeping on the floor, not sleeping even on a bed for 14 years. Um, no pillow, just using my hands or a, a folded up blanket as a pillow and living a very regulated life, uh, eating and eating and sleeping at the same time, uh, cool showers, working in the fields or doing humanitarian work. And this is where I got in, introduced to the humanitarian part of my life, food for life, because back then we're talking about the early 80s. Food for Life was in existence, but it was a very grassroots operation. There were maybe a dozen or 10 or a dozen programs around the world, and they were very, uh, very much grassroots, very underdeveloped. They weren't consistent in the way they were presented and so on. So I got involved early on as a volunteer, cooking and serving food to the homeless in Sydney. 
And then fast forward 10 years, as a monk, I taught myself graphic design and marketing and copywriting and uh, developing a newsletter. And I started to use Food for Life as a communications tool to teach people about the spiritual hospitality culture of India. Because as a monk, I was I was a Hindu monk. So there's an important aspect of that hospitality culture wherein um, if an uninvited guest comes to your home, you treat them like God. And the Sanskrit term for that is Atithi Narayan. So Atithi means unscheduled or untimed. And Narayan is a name of God. So that person who comes unscheduled to your house, just unannounced, you would treat them like God, what to speak of your friend or neighbor. So that was an important lesson for me in the power of food and how food was the great communicator. And it was it was a tool that could be used and pretty much is established in every culture of the world as a way to bring people together. It's the one thing which we can all agree on. We can just sit around a table and enjoy a meal prepared by mum that is prepared with a loving intention. So that became the core philosophy of Food for Life Global, which we then later defined as food yoga, the idea of using food to connect to each other. So 10 years in from my life as a monk, I was asked to leave Australia and to come to the United States and set up the headquarters, which we called Food for Life Global. And that's when I wrote a training manual and started to develop the systems and the, the structure to expand this program around the world. And to date, we have now over 250 projects in 65 countries. And we estimate at least we've served 8 billion meals at an approximate rate of about a million meals a day, which is about 16 meals every second. And they're freshly cooked meals, which is quite unique in this space because at the level that we operate, those numbers, those big numbers, um, typically when food is distributed at that large volume, it's always free, frozen or prepackaged. Whereas in the case of Food for Life Global, it is freshly prepared that morning. So the rice is washed, the beans are washed, the vegetables are washed and cut, and the meals are prepared in large quantities and then served directly to the public that same day, which is quite unique. And that's a short story. Yeah. How I got to where I was. <laughs> well, Food for Life Global. That is that is a remarkable story. Um, uh, I don't want to take us too far off topic, but uh, so I'll, I'll let my curiosity go about the uh, invention to help folks uh, um, learn how to play pool. Um, <laughs> but but let me ask. Uh, so it's interesting. I actually um, recently was listening to a podcast by a very famous restaurateur. And uh, he mentioned going to India and being so impacted by the hospitality culture mm -hmm. and uh, mentioned that like the guest is God, right? And, and it just sort of fell off, you know, or rather it struck me as being um, uh, uh, strange, right? Um, but, but it makes so much more sense now that you, you know, kind of describe it. Yeah, it's just a... I, most people are familiar with the concept of namaste, right? When you go and when you go to India, people putting their hands together and then saying namaste. So essentially what that means is you're honoring the spirit within. So there's this idea that it's very non-discriminatory. It's like we're not looking at your skin color. We're not looking at, you know, your gender. We're looking at who you are in essence inside the soul. And I honor that soul within you. That's that's the purpose. That's the 
ID behind the namaste gesture. gesture. And so just taking us back briefly to get to know you a little bit better, um, when people look at the stars and they're 17, 18, 19 years old, um, they can have a lot of different uh, ideas and maybe curiosities and they, they choose to go off and do different things. Um, some find psychedelics, right? Some go to college, uh, mm-hmm. some <laughs> um, fewer become monks. Um, and uh, I'm curious, um, what in well, your I can tell you how that happened. Is that, if that's yeah, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, well, just to, I mean, at that age of 50. So first of all, my interest in astronomy was purely academic and, and, and um, just intellectual. I was fascinated. It wasn't driven by drugs. I didn't, I wasn't taking any drugs at the time. I was just fascinated by the night sky and the numbers, the expansive universe. I was amazed. And I was my favorite, you know, shows on TV were like cosmos and, and, and anything that related to like the universe and so on. But later on at the age of 19, I did experiment with, with mushrooms and psilocybin. And that basically led me to confirm that, we are more than simply a physical body. And I had an out-of-body experience where I literally felt like I was driving this machine I called a body. And I felt like I was sitting on the shoulders of this physical form walking down the road. And it was quite quite an epiphany. It was like, oh my God, I, I really am the driver of this car. I'm not the car. And so that made me want to know more. Okay, well, who am I really? What what is the essence, the nature of life? Have I been here before? And I felt eternal. I felt like I I couldn't be destroyed. I was a powerful energy. And as you know, and this is this is basic um, physics. Energy can't be destroyed. It just changes shape. So it's the same with the spiritual, you know, with our spiritual uh, essence. Or and consciousness is simply a symptom of that spiritual essence or the soul. So I wanted to know more. So that led me to taking the the big decision to, okay, I'm going to become a monk and I'm going to renounce and practice celibacy and really focus on trying to understand who I really am, you know, getting to the the, the core essence of what the purpose of life is. Wow. Um, And uh, what was the decision, if you don't mind me asking, because you said you did that for 10 years. What what was the decision? 14 years. I'm sorry, 14 (laughs) years. Um, Well, the tradition. Tremendous amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, well, you think about this, right? From the age of 19 to 33, it's like the prime years of a young man's life. And absolutely. I'm I'm being a monk. And, And I was, it wasn't like I was hiding out in a cave. I'm, I'm living in an ashram, I'm living in, you know, and I moved, I, I lived in the country for a while, then I lived on a farm, then I lived on, you know, in the city, North Sydney, and I was interacting with people and I was doing social activities, but, you know, very, um, but living a very strict lifestyle, I wasn't going to parties or clubs or anything, but I was interacting with people um, and doing service and and teaching and and serving food and that sort of thing. So... I wasn't hiding away, but I was just living a very conservative, very, very pure, pure lifestyle. And at a certain point in time, I realized, you know what? I can't keep, I can't do this forever. There's certain biological urges. And I realized, you know, I, I can't be celibate forever. I need to think about getting a wife. And so part of, it's a natural part of the tradition that the monks can actually get married. Uh, you're not 
forbidden to get married. You just have to make that decision and then you, you make that transition. Um, so that's what I decided to do at the age of 33. And I thought, okay, let me now, you know, move beyond this. And, and I, I got married and I had children and lived a normal life like anyone else, but with the foundation, the spiritual foundation that I built up over those 14 years. So it, it gave me a very unique perspective on life. So as I, when I approached business, it wasn't simply to make money, but it was about how can I make a difference? How can I make the world a better place? So essentially my business career has always been social entrepreneurism. It's always been fueled by uh, making the world a better place, leaving a legacy and so on. So that's, that's because of that spiritual foundation that I built up early on in my life. And yeah, the building sure. product which you alluded to before, that came about before I became a monk. I was an amateur pool uh, snooker player, and I had dreams of becoming a professional, uh, and I was actually quite good. And my biggest challenge of becoming a monk was not giving up girls, although I had some girlfriends, was actually giving up snooker giving up pull. <laughs> I was so attached to it. So that was the biggest challenge for me. And then later on, when I got married, I took, I took it up again at the age of 35 or 36. And very because I had that foundation, I became very good and started winning competitions. That led me to writing articles in the major billiards magazines, working with professionals, and then eventually inventing the world's best aiming device for pool, all based on geometry. So that's called the Billy Dame Trainer. Wow, it's amazing. Um, you know, I pride myself on asking stupid questions because I'm pretty sure I know the general answer to this, but it's still curiosity. What in the tradition would require you to give up playing pool as a monk? I mean, it's just truly just, you know, abstaining from all worldly desires, including no, it's a good pastimes. It's, it would be considered like um, futile and mundane, like not really helping you spiritually, although that could be contested because once I really studied the art and science of billiards and I realized that it was more than simply just the physical, you know, geometry of, of playing, there was more to it than that. There was a mental side of it. And this is the same with any sports, actually. If you want to excel in any sports, whether that's fighting or rugby or cricket or whatever, there is a very important mental aspect that you have to transcend physical limits. You have to you have to believe in yourself. You have to feel confident. And the way to do that effectively is to draw from your spiritual essence. And this is actually a topic that I talk about in a book I wrote called the... Um, the what's it called again? I just gone blank. It's a book I wrote about billiards, uh, which talks about uh, the yoga of pool. That's right. Yeah, the yoga of pool. And in that book, I I draw from my spiritual experience, even quoting the Bhagavad Gita and so on, and helping people to understand that the real source of confidence is not ego where you just artificially sort of inflate yourself up. Oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm this. I'm great. I'm, I'm it's, it's understanding that you are a spiritual being. You are, you're a, you are a spark of God's splendor. You have powers beyond belief. And so if you draw from that energy, then yes, you should be confident because you're a, you're a child of God. You're a spark of God's splendor. So that was a very different way of approaching it. And as a result, that book's one of the best-selling billiards books in the world today. 
Wow, really? Yeah, the yoga <laughs> <It> is, <laughs> um, yeah, well, great titles will do it for you. And uh, and that is, it definitely jumped out uh, to me, the yoga of pool. Um, I, I'm, I guess a transition towards um, nutrition and, and your, your more recent work. Um, you've also written a book called Food Yoga, um, which again yeah. is kind of a, uh, uh, a non sequitur. It's a pattern interrupter. You don't usually think about, uh, you know, yoga being a, a physical practice. A lot of people, it's spiritual, it's uh, meditation, it's maybe exercise, depends on the person. Mm-hmm. It's not usually associated with food. Help, help me unpack that term. What is food yoga? Well, when most people think of yoga, they think of the gymnastics side of yoga. So there is actually what's called a yoga ladder. So there are different rungs as you progress through the yoga path. Uh, and one of those rungs is the physical aspect where you do what's called asanas or bodily, you put your body in certain positions. That's literally just one of the steps of the yoga path. It's not the complete path. It's just one step. So the idea is that you first have to come to the understanding that the body is a temple, that this body is a gift from God. The human form is such a rare commodity. It's such a, you're such a blessing because it's only in human form that we can ask the big questions about what is the meaning of life? Who are we? Um, you know, and, and we can transcend these physical limits. We can transcend these physical constraints. So it is a blessing to have a human form. So the human body is a temple and this temple is meant to be respected. And we do yoga as a form of stressless exercise. It's a, it's a very rigorous exercise protocol, but it's free from stress. It's, it's quite it's interesting, um, but you get a full workout and it's extremely beneficial to your health, not just physically, but mentally as well. And then there's other aspects of yoga where you learn to understand that the mind is not you, but the mind is a tool that we use. It can be our friend or our enemy. So understanding these things, that the senses are things that we need to bring under control. They're like wild horses on a chariot. We need to control them. And the mind is like, you know, the driver of the chariot. We need to uh, you know, give the chariot driver uh, instructions about what to do. So the mind is not us, it's simply a tool. And so once you understand how this all ties together, there's a physical body, there's a mind, there's an intelligence, and there's a driver within the soul. Once you understand the distinction between all those three, all those, then you can learn to transcend them. And um, it, by doing that, you can learn to connect with God. And that's the purpose of yoga is to connect. It, it comes from the root word yuj, Y-U-J, and it means to connect. So food yoga is using food as a way to connect to your spiritual self, using food as a way to connect with, with another person very, very deeply. And we all have this experience where, as I, I mentioned earlier, where we, we gather around a dinner table at Thanksgiving or Christmas and although we may have differences of opinion and even political differences or whatever, we may argue just before dinner, all of a sudden we're sitting together as a family and we're enjoying a meal that has been prepared with love. And that is the, the unif- unifying factor is food. Food is the great communicator. It breaks through all barriers and it can unite us all. And so therefore our tagline at Food for Life Global is 
to unite the world through pure food. By preparing food with a loving intention and sharing it liberally, we believe we can create this sense of family, this sense of unity. And by doing that, things like hunger and poverty can disappear overnight. Because if we did feel ourselves to be a global family, where we saw each other as a brother or sister, looking beyond the skin color and gender and all these other things which divide us, you know, the getting rid of these tribal mentalities, which is so prominent right now. If we see the essence of life, that we're all global, a global family, we're all earthlings or spiritual beings, then things like hunger would disappear overnight. We wouldn't have hunger. So the, the, the solution to hunger and other problems of the world is promoting unity and food is the best way to do that. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment and one that I am, uh, I think about uh, actually often it, it definitely animates a lot of my uh, broader ambitions in the world because we have these incredible technologies and just a tremendous amount of resources. But, you know, it's kind of like that quote, um, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So we have these just a, a tremendous amount of money going towards um, these different programs and you you obviously have to think about militarily right mm -hmm. i mean tens of billions if not trillions of dollars when you look at globally wow. so uh, yeah i've i've um i was a political science major because it always uh possessed me i was always um i couldn't figure out you know why do we do these these horrible things to each other um yeah. generally in the name of you know religion or resources um or crazy people, right? I mean, when you look at the history of war, um, right. it's generally one of those different things. It's, it's land, it's resources, or it's a, it's a religious strife, or it's, um, you know, a, a singular sort of uh, despot, right? Um, and, and so you're absolutely right that if you can transcend that and create this global community, and, and we as a, as a humanity, as a society globally, can decide, you know, we're just not going to do that stuff. And instead, we're going to put all of those resources towards feeding people, housing people, you know, creating yeah. a, an abundance and a happiness for our global society. I mean, it's just, it's within our reach, right? You know, it's That's like John Lennon said, war is over if you want it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, when people talk about religion, being religious doesn't mean you're spiritual. That's one thing that people need to understand. It doesn't mean you're a spiritual person. It means that you're inclined to follow some certain rules and regulations of a particular doctrine and culture. It doesn't mean you're actually a spiritual person where you understand that you're a soul and you have a, a relationship with God. It just means that you're a very obedient and, you know, uh, and devoted. All right. So there's a difference between spirituality and religiosity. So being spiritual is very simple. You understand the difference between matter and spirit. You understand the difference between a physical body and the animator of the body, which is the soul. You understand the difference between consciousness and, and you know something that, which is dead, a, a live body and a dead body. The difference is, is one has consciousness and one doesn't have consciousness, and consciousness is a symptom of the soul. So that's, that's a basic understanding, understanding of spirituality. And then you take that further. Okay, I'm a spiritual being. I'm unlimited. I'm eternal. I'm equal to all. I'm a quali qualitatively equal to God and, and, and so on. How can I serve my family? How can I, how can I express this appreciation and this gratitude? And that's, 
that's when we see spirituality in action. And as a result of that, we see um, humanitarian efforts. We see uh, a push for like global unity, global citizenship. And we get rid of all of these things which divide us, which has been created by the you know the the corporatocracies the globalists of the world who are basically trying to divide the world to to enable them to control it more but if we look past that and understand that we're all um equal spiritually physically we're not equal very different we all have different opportunities different situations but spiritually at essence we're all equal and once you understand that then it's very easy to be spiritual it's very easy to to serve humanity and make a very positive difference in the world well, I think it's a wonderful uh, view of the world and, and humanity and one that I wish more people shared. Um, I want to make sure that we we get to uh, some of the work you're doing today, because um, I have so many curiosities and how you could possibly be serving these millions of uh, freshly cooked plant-based meals around the globe. Um, but as a lead up to that and your work with Food for Life Global, um, you had a stint, uh, I think, you know, maybe 10 years, that's where the 10 year was, it was 14 as a monk, 10 years at the, at the world, world bank. Right. Um, a sentence like that has never been uttered except for <laughs> about you. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> there are not a lot of former monks employed at the world bank. How, how did that come about? Yeah, what was so... your work like there and how does it connect to your bigger story? Well, I feel the way I see that is that that was, God helping me out, like responding, like reciprocating with the effort that I put in as a monk, because I was a very sincere monk. I live very simply. I limited, you know, my Sanskrit vocation. I live very, very, very austerely. Um, had I, my possessions could be fit into one bag and so on. So during the time I was a monk, I wasn't your average monk because I was learning how to use a computer. I learned, I taught myself copywriting. I taught myself marketing, uh, graphic design, and so on. So in 95, and I was still a monk, the internet came along. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. This is this is a way that we could reach more people with our message at Food for Life. So I, I built the first Food for Life website in 1995, which is well before many Fortune 500 companies even had a website. At that time, most people were still writing writing off the internet as some fab and they didn't realize how powerful how all-consuming it would become and how it would transform business but i saw that i saw the potential so i built a website and i learned i taught myself web development so when i got married in 97 i thought well what i need what can i do to make money i've got to make money now i'm i'm, I'm not a monk anymore i was depending during the time that i was a monk i didn't have wages i would live at the temple, they fed me and I, I did service and I was provided everything I needed. So in 97, I thought, well, I could build websites. That's a new up and coming career. So I started building websites and I built websites for very large companies. Um, funny enough, Heineken, Amstel, through a marketing company, I got all these subcontracts, uh, married hotels. I built up a very impressive portfolio and as a result, in 2000, a friend of mine who was working at the World Bank said that they were looking for, and I was also doing web hosting at the same time, they were looking for a web administrator. 
And uh, I applied for the job and I got the job. But just simply based on what Paul, the, the work that I'd been doing over the last three years. And I didn't have a college degree. And 80% of the people that work at the World Bank are PhD. So it's a very exclusive club. But I was offered a job immediately based on the merit, you know, the, the work that I'd done over those three years. And I ended up working for the next 10 years at the World Bank as a contractor, working for at least 25 or 30 different departments, working across the whole, you know, the whole network, um, building websites, graphic design, and so on. So that was a very interesting experience. And it made me realize, that, you know, when people think of the World Bank, they think of this big evil monster that's, um, you know, part of the global elite that is destroying the world. But it's really made up of regular people like you and I, Matt, who are just doing their job. And yeah, there may be some foul play at the top of the institution possibly, but um, it, it's it's an organization trying to do its best to, to make the world a better place. And I'm sure it just gave you a tremendous aperture because they do have a lot of, um, you know, hunger relief programs and, exactly. and the they like. Do a, lot so, of good, a lot of good things, yeah, on the yeah. ground. Um, so, so let's jump over to Food for Life Global. Um, I, I'm just the sheer logistical challenges that may be required to to feed so many people on a daily basis, particularly plant-based meals. Um, I, I'm so fascinated. I, I just I'd love to understand, you know, how how did the organization grow? to be so large and and maybe you can help me understand how do you feed so many people on a daily basis well it it varies in scale across the world like we have operations in 65 countries and some of those projects are very small where they're serving maybe 50 people a day it's a very small mom and pop operation and they'll provide 50 meals but it's always freshly cooked and that's a unique aspect of food for life global that uh, meals are freshly cooked they're not pre prepared prior, but it's made that day, that morning, served to the public. And then we have much bigger kitchens, sophisticated super kitchens in India, which are uh, co-sponsored by the Indian government. We work with them as a partner, or our affiliate does. Food Flow Global is the headquarters for an international affiliation of projects around the world. So our affiliates in India have these super kitchens and they cooperate with, with with a program that was initiated by the Indian government called the Midday Meal Program. And that's a program wherein the Indian government is co-sponsoring meals um, for underprivileged children in underprivileged schools across the country to make sure that kids come to school and they get an education. As a result of that program, um, children that would normally be engaged in uh, child labor uh, go to school and get an education. So it's it's really, it's a wonderful way to break the poverty cycle because kids have a reason to go to school because they get a very healthy, delicious lunch. And at the same time, they get an education. So those kitchens are very sophisticated where they'll have lines of like pressure cookers, like maybe 10 or 12, 700 liter uh, stainless steel containers, uh, cooking pots, which will produce 700 liters of rice in 15 minutes. Then they'll have like um, chapati making machines that will produce a thousand chapatis or even more actually, I think it's 10,000 chapatis an hour. So they have all these sophisticated uh, technology to produce very large volumes. And these kitchens will do 20 to 30 to even up to 70,000 meals a day. 
Um, and they, you know, once they prepare those meals, they, they're loaded into stainless steel containers. They're sealed with a plastic tie. And then they're loaded onto small trucks, which go out to schools around the neighborhood. And then the teachers actually serve the meals. That's another beautiful aspect of this, that we provide the meals. And then the teachers uh, break the seal on these stainless steel containers and serve their class the meal themselves. So it's a, it's a very nice way for the teachers to make a very intimate connection with the children. And it's, it's a beautiful enhancement to the whole educational experience. So that's, you know, that's how we do that. And as I said, it's like it, it varies in scale country to country, but overall it's at least a million meals, 1.3, 1.5 million meals a day. Uh, every school day, it's not weekends. Weekends a little bit less, but on during the school day, that's the numbers. And um, to date, we estimate that it's at least eight billion meals. It's around six. As I said, it's about sixteen meals a second. Wow, Un unbelievable! I mean, truly. I, I, do you make it to India or some of these locations often? Because I, I, I have to imagine. Yeah, I've traveled the best a lot feeling in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, I, I love it. I mean, it's a really nice experience. I love Indian food because as a monk, I, I had a lot of Indian food. And I've actually, a chef, I've become ex expert at cooking Indian food and other cuisines. Um, and the I was there in 2013. I have traveled a lot, a lot over the years. I've actually visited 72 countries in my career. And I've been to three war zones and um, some of the biggest disasters natural disasters of the modern history like for example the great tsunami of 2004 we had a team responding that afternoon in chennai south india to this tsunami victims so it was boxing day 2004 the same afternoon we had a team feeding people on the beach and then i led a team of 50 volunteers from around the world uh, to converge on the island of sri lanka which was heavily hit by the tsunami and for the next three months, we served about 350,000 meals to villages in Sri Lanka. So we've been a first responder to some of the biggest disasters in modern history, including the tsunami of uh, Japan in 2010, I think, 2011, the Haiti earthquake in 2010, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane, um, all the different you know major disasters of the modern world. We've always been there as a first responder, providing meal, vegan meals to those in need. It's amazing. And I feel silly because I, I, I want to make sure to be respectful of your time and, and at least touch briefly on um, your uh, efforts to, to create more transparency and even use the blockchain to really overhaul um, what I think is one of the biggest challenges with um, not-for-profit organizations. But um, we never actually touched on uh, what your journey to veganism was I, I assume you picked it up in that in that period as a monk but um yeah maybe you can touch on that really quickly I, I think it's critical to the story yeah well as a monk the diet was vegetarian so from the and i was a vegetarian from the age of 16 so i read a book i think it was a seventh day adventist magazine it got me to become a vegetarian and then when i become a monk well that's the diet that you would eat and back then you're talking like 1979 when i became a vegetarian it was 1977 i mean there was no vegetarians so that was radical um but then as a monk we only had vegetarian food 
But then during the during my uh, experience as a monk, I would represent Food for Life Global at various conferences, uh, vegetarian conferences, animal rights conferences, and I became aware through that experience about the abuse of cows in the dairy industry, and I realized, oh, I can't support this diet anymore. So it was around 1998. Uh, when I just gotten married, I realized I have to be a vegan in order to be consistent with the philosophy of what Food for Life stands for, your respect for all life and so on. So in 1998, I became a vegan. And uh, very soon after that, a year after that, I made that a policy at Food for Life Global that we would only support vegan food relief and you know, transition all the vegetarian food relief programs over to vegan food relief programs. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll withhold my my many follow up questions there. I can't imagine that that was an easy transition. The costs involved, the other opinions that might be involved. So I'll I'll just give well, you. Well, it was a... actually it ended up being cheaper. I mean, from the charity side of it, it was a challenge for me personally because I was still interacting with the temple. I was still living at the temple. I was a young young married man and um i was still even though i wasn't a monk i was still sort of in the community and i would start making vegan meals you know in the temple and it was like very radical <laughs> cooking for krishna and cooking vegan meals for krishna and trying to educate the community that no that we have to do this because this is we can't support the dairy industry abuse and so on so it was a bit of a challenge but over time, as more information became public through the internet and so on, um, we I saw that a lot of my friends in that community started also transitioning and realizing that this is this is the way to go. And I never looked back. And so, it, you know, it became Food for Life Global was my project. Um, and I just made that a very, draw a very hard line. And that just became our policy at Food for Life Global. Yeah. Uh, I actually was going to say it, it was probably cheaper, <laughs> you know, yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, the, uh, the social pressures are, are still there. We obviously all know about that. Um, let me ask you just uh, before we, we wrap up, um, uh, I think you're time. doing some very cool things. Yeah, please. Because uh, I think anytime somebody supports an organization, whether um a for-profit or a not-for-profit you you always wonder you know where is that money going and and even more so if it's a if it's a charitable donation you you want to know that it's going to the people yeah. that you're, you're trying to help right and and so much uh has been done and and more can be done but it's very cool that you're you're leveraging that to increase transparency tell, tell us more about that well, as a social entrepreneur, I've always looked for like leveraging the latest technology to help the charity. And that's an example of this case in point is the fact that I built a website in 1995, which is way before so many other organizations. Um, so I'm always looking to leverage the latest technology. And I realize, well, blockchain is here to stay. It's going to revolutionize biz the way we do business, just like the internet. Um, it's a way to very transparently conduct business. It empowers the individual, you know, taking away the middleman. So we all pretty much are aware of that now. 
And as a result of that, and being in charity for so long, I've been now a humanitarian for 39 years, I am aware of the concerns of the public when they make a donation that their dollars get spent to the programs that they were intended to. One of the challenges that are faced by people that run charities, and this is what a lot of the public doesn't understand, is particularly if you're a small charity, is that with those donations, you need to use some of it to make, you know, to operate the organization. The bigger charities have a little bit of a different story. They'll get corporate sponsorship because of their name brand recognition. They'll get donations which are unallocated, meaning they can use that money for operations. And then any public donations that come in, they can turn that public donation 100% around to programs. So a lot of the smaller charities don't have that uh, ability because they're literally just depend, de um, depending on public donations. They don't get the big corporate dollars. So that's one thing that the public needs to be aware of. And that's a similar situation with Food for Life, although we're starting to get more uh, corporate sponsorship. And we do get a lot of corporate sponsorship program to program. Like in India, as I said, it's the Indian government is, is actually supporting us. And then corporations are also sponsoring the meals and so on. But that's not the case with a lot of programs around the world. Uh, and it's the same with Food for Life Global. So we do get some corporate dollars and we use that to run the operations. But in any case, because of the way we are able to feed people and because we're a volunteer-run organization, we can keep our operations costs very low. As a result, we are very, we are very cost-efficient, if not the most cost-efficient food relief in the world. Every dollar spent, every dollar donated to Food for Life Global will result in at least two people getting a freshly cooked vegan meal. So that's one thing that we guarantee. Whenever you donate a dollar to Food for Life, we guarantee that two kids get a meal. Whatever happens in the background, you know, in the way that the money has to be used to also, you know, pay for the marketing of, of that opportunity and so on. But we make that guarantee that two one dollar equals two children getting a meal. Um, so we're very cost efficient. And I put that down to, as I said, the volunteer, the fact that we're mostly volunteer run and the fact that it's vegan and it's less expensive to, to feed uh, to people, to feed people. If we, if we were to provide meat-based, dairy-based foods to the public, um, instead of feeding a million people a day, we did some calculations. We'd only be able to feed between 60 and 100,000 people a day with the same amount of money. Wow. Yeah. Because, uh, well, we could, we could have an entire separate podcast on that topic alone, just the uh, um, idea of using land and water and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, basic grains and other cereals that, uh, you know, we feed to livestock and, the, the inefficiency and waste all along the, the food yeah, chain. There's, um, there's all these side benefits, which a lot of people aren't aware of. It's not just filling a belly, but it's it's saved the planet. There's less trees getting cut down. There's less less uh, um, water pollution because of, you're not supporting animal agriculture and so on. So there's so many, so many benefits to a vegan diet. Um, yep, I, I can say you're you're definitely preaching to the choir there. <laughs> um, as we uh, as we wrap up, um, and, and by the way, I, I should have acknowledged. I, I think it's really fantastic what you're doing on the transparency front. Obviously, the organization as a whole and the impact it's having on 
individuals, like you say, just filling bellies is is amazing. Um, but obviously the, you know, pushing the the boundaries and being so transparent to see on your website exactly what percentage of donations goes to the operating, you know, the 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 the, the operations of the business, how much of it goes to spreading the word and, and obviously raising more money than how much of it goes directly to to those in need of a meal is is really awesome. So I, I commend you for that. Um, yeah, as, I, didn't, I didn't talk about the blockchain. I meant to transition into that and I forgot. <laughs> so, yeah, so leveraging the technology. So um, as a result of that, that sort of passion, I realized, okay, we need to use this to um, show more transparency to the public. So I developed a, a social enterprise called the OM Guarantee Certification. And OM stands for Output Measurable Guarantee. So output, social output, measurable guarantee of social good. So the idea would be that we would sell the social impact as a product. So rather than donating to a charity, companies or individuals could purchase a guaranteed social impact. And they would then therefore know exactly what happens with their dollars. And all of this would be tracked on the blockchain. So <clears throat> last year, I wanted to scale it even further. So Om Guarantee is still an existing project and it's it's doing well. And we had many companies sign up. We wanted to scale it even further. So we created what's called the Kindly Ecosystem. And we launched a new blockchain-based product uh, pr- project called Kindly that would um, scale this social impact measurement, this certification of social impact on the Polygon blockchain, um, essentially aiming to become the supply chain of measurable social impact, wherein we can provide a way for companies and individuals to connect to our social impact engine and create measurable social impact in real time and thus benefit the charities, you know, the charity partners that we we have involved with us. And Food for Life Global is one of those charity partners. So kindly... The Kindly Clone was launched on September 22nd, um, and now we're building various social impact products to support the coin, the utility of the coin, one of them being a social impact engine, then a social impact scanner. And most people who are familiar with um, cryptocurrency are aware of like EtherScan or BSC scan, where you scan your transactions. So we'll have a similar scanner, but it'll be focused on your measurable social impact and so on. So in all ways, we want to basically make charitable giving transparent. We want to track the whole process, the whole life cycle of that charitable giving and make it easy for everyone in the world to be kind. That's our, you know, that's our tagline, that kindness is cool. And we want to make it easy for everyone to be kind. That's awesome. Um, So that leads me to the next question, which is what's next, right? Um, You've had, it seems, a number of successful careers all packed into one lifetime. And then you were a monk, uh, which I think is slightly different. Um, What's next for for you? What what are you excited about? What's next for the Food for Life organization? So, I mean, you probably heard some animals in the background here. I'm actually living in the Andes Mountains. You hear that rooster? And my wife, Juliana, runs an animal sanctuary. So we're living in the Andes Mountains of Colombia with around 250 animals, all rescued, bulls and cows and sheep and llamas and so on. And um, so that's a very interesting experience. And it's because of that that actually expanded my understanding 
um, of even the concept of food yoga, where I realized that it wasn't just about respecting humans and seeing the, the human population as the global family, but all animals, all species of life as a global family. So that was a very eye-opening experience to come, you know, to bring her into my life. We got married uh, seven years ago, and then this has now become part of my life, living on a sanctuary. So the future is that really the Conley Project is the future because we feel that that with, with the advance of blockchain technology and the, you know, the inevitability of, of digital currency and so on, um, and the fact that the younger generation, <clears throat> your generation, and so on, are really pushing for companies to be caring and responsible. The future is that uh, all business will be conducted in a way which will be um, kind to the environment and kind to the you know the community. So we're we're tapping into something which is, you know, the future of the world basically. The, the same generation that is pushing for kindness, pushing for social responsibility is the exact same generation that is pushing for the adoption of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. So the Kindly ecosystem we feel is the real future. And with that, with the expanse and success of the Kindly ecosystem, that will naturally feed into supporting the charity work that we're doing here at the Sanctuary and at Food for Life Global, which is essentially our, you know, that's our life mission. Yeah. It's a wonderful mission. It's one that I'm certain every single person living, uh, listening to this podcast uh, wants to see you be successful in achieving. And I'm sure they want to support that effort. Um, obviously, we have our partnership coming into the holiday season. We're very excited that um, for every purchase made through our um, uh, websites, we will be donating food to those in need. Um, but for folks who want to get more involved directly or support Food for Life directly, where's the best place for us to send them uh, to learn more about you and your work or uh, obviously to support the organization? Yeah, so obviously we're very lucky that we got a three-letter domain name, so ffl.org. Um, you know, that's our main website or foodforlife.org. We also own that domain. So that's where you can find out about Food for Life, all the work that we're doing. Um, and then Kindly, you know, the Kindly Project, if they want to learn more about that, it's kindlycoin.com. And then the OM Guarantee Project, if you want to OM Guarantee certify your products or services, it's omomguarantee.com. So those three, you know, enterprises are, you know, all wrapped together, all serving each other, all part of the same ecosystem. And it's a way for us to, you know, to make the world a better place. And hopefully by the time I've retired, I'm 58 going on 59, um, you know, I'll be satisfied that I, I did something meaningful. Well, given your, your background as a monk, um, if you're not satisfied with the impact that you've made, um, I don't think anyone will ever be satisfied with anything. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, we all fight those demons with, uh, you know, desire and striving, but but you've seemed to channel it into a, a really amazing journey. Um, I, I look forward to seeing what you do next. I'm so excited to be working more closely with you and, and supporting the organization in, in the very small way that we might. Um, and uh, is there any last um, message uh, to, to leave with our organization a call to action or just something that people should 
think about as they go on to their day? Well, one of the things which I try to share, it's a, it's, it's a message which I learned from my spiritual teacher and which has sort of guided me throughout my life. And that is to understand that if you want to elevate your consciousness, you need to master the tongue. So the tongue has two functions, tasting and vibrating. So what we speak and what we eat will have a tremendous impact on our consciousness, on our evolution. So master the tongue if you want to actually evolve spiritually, physically, and you know, and even um, economically. I mean, just learning to master the, becoming a master of the tongue. It's one thing to become a master of your physical body or your mind, but mastering the tongue is another challenge in and of itself. So spiritual life or evolution of consciousness begins when, you, when we master the tongue. And that's the takeaway message that I convey in my book, Food Yoga, which is available on Amazon if anyone is interested to read it. Very cool. Master the tongue. I've never heard about uh, the tongue described in that way, yeah. vibration yeah. and eating. Um, but that is a that is definitely something I will meditate on for the rest of the day. So, um, Paul, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for sharing your, your story and some wisdom. And I look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure to have the opportunity to share. Appreciate it.